used in the uh, worship and life of the synagogue once a year. Um, and so that's, what, that's the sense in which they belong together. They don't really belong together in any other way. They're simply a five um, works that are held together by the manner of their liturgical usage. Um, and, but they do correspond as a collection of five to the uh, five books of the Torah um, and the five books within the book of Psalms about which I'll say something later on this evening. Their Jewishness uh, also comes out in the way in which the story, or, or rather the Jewishness of Ruth in particular, comes out in the way in which the story ends with a reference to David. Um, what, did, what does this story mean for David? Well, it means this is a story of where David got his great-grandma from. Uh, somebody asked a really neat question. Um, did God already decide to make any son of Boaz as David's ancestor, or did it happen because of Ruth? It's a neat question. I have no idea what the answer is. Um, and, and the Old Testament doesn't, doesn't deal with that kind of question, because it tells the story as it unfolds and, and shows you God being involved uh, in things as they happen, rather than... It doesn't give you the impression that God had got it all kind of planned ahead of time in every single detail. Uh, and if God had done that, you might think that's a bit hard on Marlon and Kilion and a few other people who lose their lives during the Old Testament story. It doesn't look as if God works like that. God works with things that happen. Um, and one of the things that God works with in bringing David into existence is this collocation of um, a Gentile and a Jew uh, back earlier on in David's story. More, we'll come back to that issue um, in a moment. The, each of the five scrolls links with uh, one of the occasions in, then in the liturgical year and Ruth um, links with Pentecost because of the harvest motif in the story. Secondly, it's a nice story, isn't it? Uh, a, a, a commentator called George Knight uh, in his commentary says that when missionaries were able only in 1948 to, re to reduce to writing the Tamahak language spoken by some of the veiled Tuaregs of the Sahara Desert who with astonishing serendipity were in the newspaper yesterday or the day before uh, all to do with, I forget, is it Mali where they are where there's been um, trouble or uh, Mali in the last uh, day or two um, when missionaries were only in 1948 able to put the Bible into uh, uh, their language, the portion of the Bible that they chose to translate first of all into that tongue was the little book of Ruth. The reason given by the National Bible Society of Scotland was that it was, in this case, women who were the translators. It was primarily with the Tuareg women for whom the story would have a special appeal that they'd been able to make contacts. Yet I wonder if the translators were not led to their choice of book also, by the realisation that such a kindly and peaceful idyll as is the book of Ruth might have a real influence on the women's rather wild husbands and brothers. For the book of Ruth is a kindly idyll. All the characters in the story are ordinary, nice people who behave in a manner which we feel as we read it to be right and decent and almost Christian. Then, what is more, the little story has a happy ending and that is something else we like to find in a story. Uh, but there's more to it than that. It's an edifying story. The um, feminist um, guide to Ruth has some interest. In, in, the feminist companion to Ruth has some uh, interesting material in this connection. On the way in which uh, it tells this edifying story, uh, and in particular the way in which it focuses on focuses on the significance of Chesed. Um, 
which is the word that is usually translated um, something like steadfast love or covenant love or constant love or something like that. Uh, though I myself think the best translation of it is the word commitment. The theme of kindness, of chesed, is central to the book of, youth, to, to the book of Ruth. Rabbi Zaira, um, in, commenting, in, in commenting in a Jewish commentary on Ruth, uh, notes, This scroll of Ruth tells nothing either of cleanliness or of uncleanliness, neither of pro prohibition or permission. So from a Jewish point of view, what use is it? <laughs> For what purpose then was it written? To teach how great is the reward of those who do deeds of kindness. And that's a quotation from the traditional um, commentary on Ruth, Ruth Rabbah, the great Midrashic commentary on the book of Ruth. Chesed is indeed one of the key words controlling the text. The word occurs three times, at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of the story. The scroll commences with the chesed does for Naomi, glean, from gleaning in the fields to bringing food, and the chesed she does in honouring the memory of the dead in Naomi's family. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not left off his chesed from the living and from the dead. Boaz says to Ruth, Your last act of chesed is better than your first, that you did not go after the young men, whether rich or poor. Every character acting in this brief story behaves in a manner that demonstrates the heroic concept of some form of chesed. Now, if you turn on... to the next page for a moment, to page 39 uh, in the... Um, in the course notes, then there's something about this notion of chesed, which it says there, the NRSV most often translates steadfast love, but it also uses the words devotion, or faithfulness, or favour, or kindness, or love, or loyalty, or mercy. And when translations can't make, the mind how to make, make up their mind how to translate a word, then it quite often means that there isn't an equivalent English word um, to the Hebrew word in question. The word denotes an extraordinary act of self-giving. It's the nearest Hebrew word to the Greek word agape. It's used in two chief connections. It can refer to an extraordinary act of generosity or graciousness or mercy that one person shows to another when they're under no obligation to do so. There's no prior relationship between the parties. And in this sense, it overlaps with grace or favour. Um, but then in the next paragraph, it can also refer to an extraordinary act of self-giving or loyalty or mercy that a person shows to someone else when they are already in relationship with that other person. And in this sense, it overlaps with faithfulness. Faithfulness, faithfulness then denotes a general quality. Chesed, a faithfulness that goes beyond anything one might have expected. If the other person with whom you're in a chesed relationship is totally rotten to you, does something really disgusting, and you carry on acting in a faithful way towards them, then you're showing chesed. Chesed is also translated covenant love, and it does sometimes link with covenants, but it can exist outside of any covenant relationship, and it can denote a loyalty that goes beyond anything that a covenant would demand. For instance, staying faithful when the other party is not faithful. My suggestion is that covenant is an English word that covers both senses of the Hebrew word. And I'm interested in the fact that the word commitment never comes, in, at least in the NRSV at all, translate any uh, Hebrew or Greek words. Uh, here, within the writings, in books then we should be looking at, some exam examples of chesed, 
Orpah and Ruth showing chesed to their husbands. Um, God showing chesed. Uh, Ruth showing chesed to Boaz. And then in Lamentations we'll come across, across the way in which um, st- the steadfast love of God endures, continues forever. Um, uh, as it says in the chorus, Yahweh's chesed continues even when people have been unfaithful. Uh, in Daniel, when the officer in charge of Daniel and his friends shows them unexpected chesed. Uh, Esther has the same experience as Daniel of chesed in relation to the king. And the Psalms keep talking about chesed. I like the way in which Psalm 23 talks about God's goodness and God's chesed chasing us. Um, the world being full of Yahweh's chesed. Yahweh's chesed extending to the heavens. Yahweh's slow to get angry and of great chesed. It's an edifying book in the way it talks about and illustrates that quality. It's an encouraging book. It's an encouraging book. Not least in the way it's about people's ordinary lives. Um, And uh, Eugene Peterson, in a book of his called Five Smooth Stones for Pastoral Work, talks about this. The five smooth stones are the five um, books that make up uh, the five scrolls. So he talks about each of these five books in that, in that work, Five Smooth Stones for Pastoral Work. And he starts off by talking about the, um, the confident way in which the pastor in the service talks um, about a world that's totally in order, in which things work out properly. And then when you come out of church afterwards, uh, he and the congregation um, uh, acknowledge the reality of life not, wicked, not, all, not always working out that way, um, where, where there's chaos. Um, and, and what one of the things the pastor does in his ministry or her ministry is listen to people telling their stories about that kind of experience. Um, for pastoral work, the most important implication of the book of Ruth, he says, is simply its form. It is a short story. People need to be, to, to be, to be able to tell their story. The pastor in the church focuses more on the big story that scripture tells. Um, For the pastor it's important that the book of Ruth gives us a model for taking seriously each person, however obscure, however important, however out of it, um, and makes it possible for them to tell their story. The short story is a pastoral tool for moving from the charismatic centre of Israel's theologians. It's just theological gobbledygook, that kind of language. Don't worry about it. The charismatic centre, in other words, the preaching of the gospel um, in, uh, in Israel's story by the, uh, the guys who, who tell the, story, the, the big story in the Old Testament. The short story is a pastoral tool from moving from the telling of that big story about God and Israel to the outlying peripheral people who feel left out of salvation history who didn't experience and don't experience the exodus, who have the kind of thing happening to them that Naomi um, had. The short story is the pastoral form for narrating salvation history in the vocabulary of soul history. The pastor begins his work not so much as a storyteller, but as one who believes that there is a story to be told. 
with the curiosity to be attentive to the life of another, and with the determination to listen through the apparently rambling digression, until a plot begins to emerge. The pastor enables you to tell your story. In, uh, he goes on later on to talk about the way in which you um, enable people to find their genealogy. It was very striking to me that, um, uh, I'm sorry I've t- told some of you this before, but when uh, Kathleen and I got engaged and we were talking about a honeymoon and we were going to get married in December, I assumed we'd go on our honeymoon to Bali or somewhere like that. I mean, that's where you're going to go in December, isn't it? But now I discovered um, that we were going to go to Scotland. Where it was the coldest um, snow, uh, the biggest and coldest, biggest snowstorm in December for uh, 200 years or something. Uh, uh, of course, we had a wonderful honeymoon. Uh, what, what, Kathleen wanted to go to Scotland because that's where her ancestors came from when they were kicked out uh, for rebelling against the English um, in, uh, in the 17th century um, and sent off to the colonies. Um, and, but what was interesting for me and for her in different ways was what it was like for her to, to, to be there, particularly given how tough the weather was uh, in that uh, land where her ancestors had come from uh, those centuries ago. She was, and I'd always, I'd always one, thought it was weird Americans were so keen on going to Europe and finding where they came from and whatnot, because that seemed to me fairly boring. I mean, that's where I come from, so, you know, I didn't need to do that. Uh, but, I, but I was able to see the significance of, of that element of discovering who you are by discovering what your genealogy was, as it were, what your story was on the broader frame that, um, that Ruth does that for David. The Hebrew historian Yehatzel Kaufman tells of an old Jewish tradition, this is um, Peterson again, that held that the revelation of a Messiah would carry with it a revelation also of lost genealogical information. Pastoral work, pastoral conversation is not only a matter of paying attention to the name of a person as such and so filling out a sense of identity but helping persons re- recognise that their names are included in the family tree. Isn't storytelling always a way of searching for one's origin? Um, Peterson says, quote, quoting from Roland Bart. It's an encouraging story. It's a theological story. It's not just uh, a Harlequin novel, you know, that you might pick up by the supermarket uh, checkout. Like the story of Esther, it's a story about God's activity behind the scenes, God's activity through coincidences, and God's activity through human action. Somebody uh, noted in their posting how interesting it was to read the book of Ruth, or asked if it was okay, almost, to read the book of Ruth uh, against the context of the period of the Judges. Uh, and that's why the English Bible uh, puts it there. But the very beginning of the book of Ruth in, it, it itself invites you to do that by locating the story in the period of the book of Judges, with which it then provides uh, such a marvellous theological contrast. When you've got to the end of the book of Judges, through that period when everybody did what was right in their own eyes and there was no king in Israel, and it's really unpleasant and it's total social, cha- social and moral chaos. 
then to turn over the page in the English Bible order and read the book of uh, Ruth tells you something different about how God is involved. Another way in which God is involved in his people's story in that period. Um, it's theological also because uh, in, in the way it provides the background to Jesus' story, uh, Ruth is there uh, in the genealogy in the first part of Matthew. It's, it's there, it's, it's theological uh, in the way in which uh, it talks about Ruth as a foreigner, but I'll say more about that in a minute. It's also theological in the way in which it um, gives you some understanding of what it means to be a goel. And again, several people mentioned in their posting, um, the, the kinsman, the, the member of the family, who is the person who will look after your interests and take action for you if necessary. A person within your broader family who's got the resources to, enable, to, 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 to make that possible. Um, and what's then significant is that that image of being the member of the family who's got resources um, on the basis of which they can do something to make it possible for your life to be restored is an image that, that is picked up in order to apply to God in the Old Testament. Several people linked it to Jesus, and by all means you can link it to Jesus, but more immediately in the context of the Old Testament, it's God who is Israel's Goel. God uh, is somebody who treats uh, us as part of his family. God is somebody who has immense resources and is willing to expel, expend them uh, in relation to Israel and in relation to us. Given that, we're, that we've got ourselves uh, in a terrible situation or that somebody else has got us into a terrible situation because not every time that Israel needed to be got out of a mess was it Israel's fault. And not every time that when we get into a mess is it our fault. Uh, God is prepared to expend his resources for the benefit of people whom he regards as members of his family in order to take action to restore them to what they ought to be. God, in that way, is an embodiment of chesed. Um, the idea of God being a redeemer like that uh, is most prominent in scripture in Isaiah 40 to 55, which keeps talking about God being a goel, or uses the verb uh, redeeming. It's um, not a very good translation of the word, I don't think, because the notion of being a goel doesn't necessarily involve spending money. Uh, the, the, the key, the centre of the notion, I think, is the idea of restoring. The, the redeemer is a restorer. The, the redeemer, um, next of kin, member of your family, is somebody who um, perceives that you're in a mess and who makes it possible for things to be put right for you, to restore you to the position that you ought to be in. So it's a theological story. Um, it's then, uh, it's an inclusivist story. Uh, it's um, one of a number of the works amongst the writings and from elsewhere in the in Second Temple times that deal with the question of Israel's relationship uh, to other peoples and their place in God's purpose. And uh, there's a big contrast between the way that Ruth uh, and also Jonah handle those questions and the way that Ezra and Nehemiah handle those questions. That commentary by the Scottish commentator whom I mentioned at the beginning is a commentary on the books of Ruth and Jonah. Uh, and you might be a bit surprised to find Ruth and Jonah um, in the same commentary, uh, but that's the reason why they are, because both of them are about 
God's attitude to and God's relationship with other peoples. Both of them are reminding Israel of God's concern for other peoples. Ezra and Nehemiah are reminding Israel of the opposite of the uh, truth. That it's important that Israel doesn't lose its identity amongst other peoples. And it's issuing that reminder in a context uh, in the Second Temple period when there's a distinct risk of that. When there is so much, so much intermarriage going on that the Judahite community might cease to exist. Then there'll never be a Messiah. So it's important that the uh, community should be kept in being but it's also important that the community should be kept in being in such a way as it doesn't put up walls to outsiders. So that when you've got people like the Ninevites uh, who um, turn to Yahweh uh, when they are given a message about judgment, then a decent Judahite ought to be glad not to be reacting the way that Jonah does. Um, and when you've got Moabites uh, like Ruth um, who are willing to make Yahweh their God, then the uh, Judahite community, well, not only ought to welcome them, but according to this story, instinctively does welcome them. Somebody asked in their posting about, somebody, you could almost see their eyebrows raised, rising in their posting. It's, you can, sometimes, I can, I quite often see your eyebrows raising in your, rising in your posting. Um, and somebody asked, I'm wondering, no, yeah, I'm wondering how it was how was recognition about the Gentiles in those days in Bethlehem? Because I couldn't find any hostility against the Gentiles in this story. What's wrong with these Bethlehemites that they aren't hostile to Gentiles? <laughs> well, you know, they've, um, th they know the other side of that truth that we shall also come across when we look at the Psalms. That fact that Yahweh um, is the God of the whole world, of all the nations, and how, God, how Yahweh is the God who is therefore to be acknowledged by all the nations. As somebody said in their posting, Ruth, um, assuming that this story belongs to the post-exilic era, how does this story compare with other accounts for how Israel ought to regard intermarriage with foreigners? Ruth gives a rather positive perspective, so long as those foreigners are content to let your God be my God. And that's the key question, as it was, for instance, with Rahab um, much earlier in Israel's story. Um, and so it's, in that sense, not so difficult to tread the line um, with regard to uh, being strict uh, about avoiding compromise with people of, from other peoples who don't want to acknowledge Yahweh, uh, but being uh, quite open to people who are willing to acknowledge Yahweh. And that's brought out in the story um, by the way in which the Moabite origin uh, of Ruth keeps being uh, emphasised. Uh, these two men took Moabite wives, um, is the first uh, occurrence of the the term. Um, somebody asked about what would be the significant, what would be the attitude to that. I mean, you're not supposed to take a Moabite wife, uh, um, but but if you go and live in, if you have to go and live in a foreign country again, somebody else asked, what was it? Was it okay for them to go and live in a foreign country? Well, Jacob's family did. 
and there was no um, uh, criticisms, no implied criticism in Genesis when that happens, um, in a crisis you may have to take responsible action of that kind. You may need to be careful, you will need to be careful about the actions that follow. Not a good idea to tell Pharaoh uh, that your wife is just your sister, really. Um, there'll be temptations that'll come. Uh, but um, if you are an Israelite family with two um, sons and you're, in Mo and you're in Moabite land, are you simply to say, you can't get married, guys? Um, and the story doesn't seem to imply a criticism uh, of um, Naomi and Elimelech for marrying off their um, boys to these two Moabite women. If anything, what eventually happens with Ruth shows that the risk was worth taking. They took Moabite wives. So, Ruth, um, Naomi returned to Bethlehem together with Ruth the Moabite, who came back with her from the country of Moab. You getting it, you see? She's Moabite and she came back from Moab. Well, she would have done. You didn't need to tell us that, did you? Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let's go to the field. Um, who's that girl, says Boaz? Uh, she's the Moabite who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. <laughs> no, there's no, no, no need to keep telling us that she's Moabite. We knew that. We know that. Okay, we got that. But there's every need to tell it because that's the, rhetorically, that's the thing that needs keeping underlining. You see, she's a Moabite. She's a Moabite. She's a Moabite. It's an inclusivist story. It's a popular story. It's a kind of folk tale. It presupposes social customs that we don't always understand. One or two of you wanted me to clarify all the social customs. I can't necessarily do so. Not necessarily can, can anybody do so. Um, that's the thing about telling a story that's um, earthed uh, in, the, in ordinary life. Um, some aspects of the story, um, how, how, the, um, how, how the court worked, uh, we know about. That is, we, we know that a village would have had a gathering of the elders at the city gate who would sort out questions, sort out conflicts in the community, for instance, and who in this story are sorting out the question of um, who is to uh, do the right thing uh, for Naomi in this context, um, that uh, in the situation that she's got into. Um, it's... Um, a frustrating thing about the story, I mean, we all assume, at least I think we assume, that Boaz is single, because it would spoil the story if Boaz were married, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, but we have to acknowledge that, I mean, maybe Boaz was married, or maybe he was a widower, that's nicer, isn't it? It'd be, yes, if Boaz is on his own, it'd be much nicer that, but, but the, you, you don't get all the background to, um, to the story. It's a popular story. It's an underclass story. The, uh, the story of Ruth, or a chunk of it, came up in the um, lectionary uh, one time in the, uh, when, I, when I was in England, um, uh, in the church where I was involved each Sunday. Uh, it was a, an inner city church, a, a multi-ethnic church, a multi-religious church, uh, in a poor area. Um, and I thought to myself, there can't be anything in the story of Ruth for our urban parish. But then I realised how similar uh, is the context out of which Ruth comes to the situation of our urban parish. Um, here, here is a story about somebody who's a single parent, uh, somebody who is a member of an ethnic minority, somebody who's been a member of a religious minority. 
It's a story about poverty. It's a story about people um, not, not able to live out their lives, as is, as is more often the case in urban areas um, than is the case with, um, with people who are better off like us. It's a story, therefore, you can tell in that kind of context. Uh, uh, somebody asked about what, what was it there for? Um, was it simply a moral? Um, should Boaz and Ruth be interpreted as Christ and the church? Or should Ruth be read strictly as a narrative with big moral importance and guidance? And the answer to that question is, I think, no. Um, I mean, you can do both of those. Um, but basically, it's a story about some human beings going through some experiences of life. Um, and one of the ways in which you go about preaching is by telling a story like that and letting people find themselves in the story. And you don't have to mention Jesus. I sometimes get in trouble with students because I don't talk about Jesus enough in sermons. Um, you don't have to mention Jesus. Um, and you don't have to draw morals from it. It's not there primarily to draw morals. It's there because it's a story about God's involvement in people's lives that invites people to uh, look for God's involvement in their own lives. It's an underclass story. It's a literary story. Um, and uh, one of the uh, aspects of that is often there are things about the story that we aren't quite sure how to uh, interpret. Uh, Atalaya Brenner, in her um, uh, Feminist Companion to, to Ruth book, starts off by talking about how the Ruth scroll is, first of all, a story written with consummate artistry, attractive plot, appealing structure, uh, freshly illuminated um, stories from people's uh, ordinary lives, central characters who are clearly drawn and easy to identify with, a, a, subtly, a clearly yet subtly presented story, magnificent language and style. And yet also, it's a story with ambiguity about it, of which one of the neat um, aspects is, uh, is how do you read the story? How do you read the person of Naomi? Do you read Naomi sympathetically or unsympathetically? Um, Jonathan Maganay, a Jewish scholar, uh, in a book of his called Bible Lives or Bible Lives. I think it's a kind of there's a kind of pun, and you can take it either way. Um, talks about how ambiguous is the portrayal uh, of Naomi in the story, um, and you have to make up your mind how you're going to read her, and how you make up your mind about that tells you something about you as well as something about her. Uh, it's a female story. Uh, it's a story about uh, two women finding their way uh, in a men's world. In, in, a, in an analogous way to the way in which Esther is a story about uh, a, a woman who has to deal with the way things work out in a, in a man's world. Uh, it's somebody in their posting made, a comment, made an interesting comment about, about that. Um, certain feminist interpretations that deem Ruth and Naomi as pawns in the patriarchal society of the time exploited in, for their biological rule in providing male lineages. Do you think there's truth in these interpretations? Truth to these interpretations. Um, what what is clear is that these two women are uh, having to find their way um, in a patriarchal society, um, and uh, but they are finding their way in a patriarchal society. Um, they also uh, 
the um, Dunn and Nolan Fuel and Nolan Fuel and David Gunn in their book on Old Testament narrative, which is listed in the bibliography, uh, also point out how Boaz too is trapped by patriarchy. He's trapped by privilege rather than by dependency. But he's then instrumental in mocking the system in the way in which the story unfolds. Um, it's uh, sorry uh, under the uh, un under talking about the ambiguity of the story uh, under in th talking about its literary nature. Um, I ought to have said something about the thing which interests you more than anything else, which is what happened on the threshing floor. Um, and of course the answer is, your guess is as good as mine. Um, this is like an old style Hollywood movie, uh, where at the crucial moment things kind of go fuzzy like this and you don't really discover uh, what happens. Not like a new, new style Hollywood movie where they tear off each other's clothes in the first scene. Um, but, but if there is, uh, if, if Ruth is propositioning Boaz, which might be the right way to read it, she is by that very act proposing marriage. So she's not saying to uh, Boaz, uh, would you like a one night stand? Shall we be friends with benefits? They don't have that concept uh, in Israel. Uh, the, she, the, uh, the situation, Ruth in that way is a bit like the Song of Songs, where the way of carrying out the process of getting married um, is, is not one that you want to encourage your youth fellowship um, to follow, uh, but it doesn't mean it's one that actually in the end is in contravention uh, with our understanding of um, uh, the nature of marriage and of uh, the nature of committed relationship and so on, I'd say. But what exactly she was doing, it's, 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 it's fuzzy and perhaps deliberately so. It's an intertextual story, that is, it's a story that um, has lots of um, parallels, links with some other stories that are worth comparing with it. That, as Ezra and Nehemiah, I've mentioned already, the story of Tamar uh, in the book of Genesis, uh, the story of the Moabite woman in Numbers chapter 25. Uh, putting these stories alongside each other helps you see what is distinctive about each of them and helps you form a kind of composite picture or build an, evid an edifice of an understanding of what it means, to, for instance, to uh, understand a relationship with other peoples, um, understand the nature of relationships between men and women under pressure, and so on. Could you repeat those for quick, the intertextual? Uh, yeah, Tamar, Ezra Nehemiah, Numbers 25. And Esther again, actually. And it's, post, and it's a post-colonial story. Uh, it's a story uh, about um, people under pressure, people having to go under the authority of other people. Um, the, the Israelites are having to have recourse to the Moabites. And so when you are a people who are um, an ethnic minority... Um, then uh, you can see how the Israelites are having to deal with that experience. Uh, and then when the Moabites come back, they're having to deal with that kind of experience as well. So it helps us see uh, a bit of what goes on in terms of relationships between powerful peoples and ordinary peoples. Um, we must stop. Uh, it's um, it's 7.53, so let's say we'll restart at 8.13. Okay? Anybody else wants to come and collect their um, test, they can do so.
Sorry? Smith. Smith. Joanna Smith. Multiple. Yeah, I got rid of the other Smith. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, Joanna. Sorry. <laughs> There's TJ Smith. There. Oh, yes, yeah. Well. Thank you. How many do you okay. have left? Oh, sorry? How many do you have left? That's six. Bring us down. Mm. Sorry. Asked me to pick their mm -hmm. cheese. 